Well, if you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 17. We need to turn to Luke chapter 17. We're going to read a story from the Gospels there. It's sort of hard to believe that we're approaching the Thanksgiving holiday at the end of November. Maybe, maybe it's not felt this way uh, to you, but given the way the last couple of years have played out, it seems like 2022 has just flown by and just been in a, a rush. It's been eventful, but it seems to have passed quickly. So as we come to the Thanksgiving holiday, I want to encourage you to embrace it, not for the you know turkey or stuffing or family or football, but certainly, certainly not as the kickstart of the greed-driven shopping season, but actually just stop your life for a time and think especially on the reasons you have to be thankful. That's not just practical wisdom. That is a biblical command. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 136 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 92, it's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Hebrews 13, verse 15, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Ephesians 5, 20, giving thanks Always, for all things, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be ye thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I want us to take a moment to read a, a narrative uh, a story from the Gospels this morning that expresses the call to be thankful. And while I want to say up front that that's not the, the singular, maybe not even the main point of the text, it is a story that it makes clear the truth that ingratitude is ugly. Luke chapter 17, we'll start at verse 11. And it came to pass... As he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went... They were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger? And he said to him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. 
As Luke begins to sort of unfold this story, he, he notes that Jesus is in a bit of an unusual place. Several times in the Gospels, in his Gospel, Luke talks about Jesus as he needs to travel to Jerusalem. His arrest and his death and his resurrection will happen there. This is why he's come. But at this point, instead of going down the well-traveled road, the text seemed to suggest that Jesus is finding himself traveling through the border between the regions of Samaria and Galilee, according to verse 11. Judea, where Jerusalem is, is down in the the south. Samaria is directly above Judea. And then Galilee is directly above Samaria. So Jerusalem, Judea is in the south. Where Jesus was raised and where much of his ministry is, is far north. And in between those two places is this region of Samaria. The Jews in Judea and in Galilee, they hated the Samaritans. And frankly, that mutual hatred is about the only thing the Samaritans agreed with them about. I think Luke puts this into geographical perspective so that we understand this This border area between the two regions, there are both Jews and Samaritans in this area. And that's important because it says in verse 2, Jesus, uh, um, sorry, verse 12, Jesus entered into a certain village and it doesn't specify which side of the border he's on as he goes into this village. And as he enters, that is, before he goes into the gates of the village, he is met by 10 lepers who are standing off at a distance. In verse 12, as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We don't know whether this was a Jewish village or whether this was a Samaritan village. But we know that this group of ten lepers were made up of both Jews and Samaritans. One of the few things that would actually bring these people together who hated each other was this sort of mutual calamity, in this case leprosy. Leprosy is a a skin disease that starts with a rash and ends with your body parts just literally rotting off before you're actually dead. It's not a disease that was immediately life-threatening, but... It's ultimately life-taking, and there is no known cure. You, you couldn't continue living in your home, not if you cared about your family. By law, you were not allowed to live within a community, right? This is why they're meeting Jesus at a distance before he gets into the gates of the village. They're, they're not allowed to go in there. You are entirely cut off from your family and friends and your job and your life. They would, they would sometimes literally hold a funeral for a person who was a leper even though they hadn't actually died yet. Lepers' wives were, were allowed and, and would remarry if they wanted to. The leper was required by law to socially distance, to cover their mouth. If anyone starts to come close to where they're at, they had to put their hand over their mouth and say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. And so entirely cut off from society, the only comfort a leper could find is in the company of other lepers. And so in this border between Samaria and Galilee, where there's plenty of Jews and plenty of Samaritans who hated each other, 
when these men became lepers, suddenly they weren't so picky about the company they kept. Now we don't actually know how many of this ten were Samaritans and how many of this ten were Jews. It could have easily been five of each. It could be, as we ordinarily think of it, that there were nine Jews and one Samaritan. We just don't know, but we know there was a a mixed company of both. Mutual misery had brought them together. And they know they're not allowed to come into the village. And they know they're not allowed to approach close to healthy people. And they also seem to know that Jesus is ready, willing, and most importantly, able to heal leprosy. So they come close, not too close, within shouting distance, lifting up their voice, begging, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, if we read Luke from beginning to end the way Luke intends us to read it, we'd have some preconceived notions about how Jesus is going to answer this plea. These lepers have some preconceived ideas on how Jesus is going to answer it. This is not the first time that Luke, in this book, tells us about Jesus encountering a leper in this area. Back in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Luke tells this story. It says, And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy. That is Dr. Luke telling us it was an advanced case. Saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So this isn't the first time that Jesus has encountered leprosy. This man in Luke 5, somewhere in another nearby village, had come appealing for mercy and Jesus healed him and sent him on his way to the priests. One of the most remarkable statements in that story in Luke 5 is the simple words that Jesus put out his hand and touched him. Nobody does that. Family won't touch a leper. Touching someone who is unclean makes you unclean, except, of course, if you're Jesus. It's the reverse for him. The touch of Jesus makes an unclean person clean. It heals leprosy. It cures sin also. So that's already happened back in chapter 5. So these 10 men in our text, I think it's safe to say that the word had gotten out, that story had gotten to them. They've been anxious for this opportunity. And it's not at all, all hard to grasp their thinking, right? All right, this is going to be just like we heard about. This is what's going to happen. We ask for mercy. He's going to reach out. He's going to touch us. We're going to be healed. And then he's going to send us to the priests for confirmation. Is that what happened? Uh, No. (laughs) Look at verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, 
He said to them, go show yourself unto the priests. Where's the touching? Where's the healing? I mean, doesn't Jesus have to do for me exactly what he's done for you? No, he doesn't. He does not owe anything to anyone. And when he does choose to bless or he chooses to heal or he chooses to save, he gets to do it by his own prerogative, not ours. God works the way he wants to work. He doesn't have to work in a way that fits your preconceived notions. There's really a great parallel story to this in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5. There's a man named Naaman who is the general of the Syrian army. And he is stricken with leprosy and he was told by a little slave girl, you know, there is a prophet over in Israel named Elisha who could heal you. So he goes to the king of Syria and the king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel that says, I'm sending you this letter, I'm sending you the general of my army, Naaman, so that you can heal him of his leprosy. Now, if you were the king of Israel and got that letter, your reaction would have been exactly the same. That is the strangest way to start a war I've ever heard of. Ask me to do something I can't do. But Elisha the prophet told him, don't panic, just send General Naaman down to my house. And so pretty soon, horses and chariots pull up outside of Elisha's house and they they stand at the door, They're, they're waiting for him to come out and he never comes out. Instead, he sends out a a servant to tell Naaman, Elisha said you should go wash in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Bye. Talk about underwhelming. General Naaman was furious. He tells us, he tells us, man, I thought for sure the prophet would come out here. I thought he would come out here, he would get in front of me, he would stand, he would, he would pray to his God, Yahweh. There would be some kind of hocus-pocus incantation. He'd, he'd wave his hands around, it would be a great show, and I would be healed. Go wash in the river Jordan. That place is a muddy mess. We have better rivers back home in Syria I could have cleaned up in. But Naaman's servants reasoned with him and said, look, if, if the prophet had come out and he'd done all that and he told you to do some great complicated thing, you would have done it. So why aren't you willing to just do the simple thing? So Naaman listened. He obeyed. He went. He washed in the river Jordan. He was cleansed of his leprosy. God doesn't have to work the way that you want him to. <clears throat> Listen, can you imagine if, if later all these lepers got together in some sort of former leper reunion? You think they would have argued about their own personal experience and that that has to be the standard? He didn't touch you? What do you mean he didn't touch you? He has to touch you. That, that's how it works. You didn't have to go wash in the river seven times? Well, it's kind of sus. I'm not so sure about you. Are you sure that you're really healed? By the way, let's make sure that we don't do that today in regard to our personal experience of salvation. 
The common factors are clear. Hear the gospel. Repent of your sin. Trust Jesus. Live in obedience to him. But outside of that, the process which the Lord uses to bring salvation can look different from one person to the next. Let's not get so caught up in questioning how the Lord chose to work in someone's life that we forget to be thankful that he has worked in our lives. I don't think the men in this text in Luke 17 got what they expected. They almost certainly expected Jesus would would come close to them as they shouted to him from a distance. They thought, well, he's going to come over here. He's going to touch us. He's going to do exactly what we heard that he did before. We ask for mercy. He touches us. We're healed. He sends us to the priests. But he simply doesn't have to do that. Just picture this as Jesus is headed into this village. They're standing off at a distance Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And instead of doing what they expect, Jesus just looks over the distance and says, go show yourselves to the priests and walks into the village. So what are they going to do? Go show ourselves to the priests? We can't do that. We're lepers. The priests are not going to appreciate that. Jesus here has actually commanded them There's something we need to understand in this story. Jesus has commanded them to do something that's found in the law of Moses. But frankly, it's one of the more confounding parts of the law of Moses. When you go back to Leviticus, you will find there's lots of information about leprosy. Here's what leprosy is. Here's how you diagnose it. Here's how you cleanse it out of your house if there's a problem. Here's all the rules a leper has to follow after he's been diagnosed with leprosy. You know what you'll never find back in Leviticus? Here's how to cure someone with leprosy. It's incurable. It couldn't be done. But in Leviticus chapter 14, there are these instructions that say, This is the law for the leper in the day of his cleansing. Go show himself to the priest, have his cleansing confirmed, offer a sacrifice, etc. It's these rules for what to do when a leper is cleansed. This thing that never happens. How strange. I wonder if anybody stopped to ever ask, you know, why do we have laws to do of what to do when the incurable get cured? It's impossible. Why is this even here? Well, that's a good question. Might be a while, but I think somebody's going to show up someday that's going to make these things handy. And so the ten lepers in our text, they've really got nothing else to do, so they, they head down the road. I mean, Jesus has walked into the village, right? So they just head down the road toward the priests. And what it says in verse 14 After he says, go show yourself unto the priest, it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. I've wondered many times what that road trip looked like. As they walked down the road together, did did one of them start to feel a little more stable on their rotting feet? Did one of them glance up at one of their fellow leper friends and notice his his face didn't have that telltale leprosy rash anymore? The traveling conversation go from from silence to or, or muttering and mumbling and just disappointments 
to just sudden excitement and jubilation? We don't know what it looked like. I think it's good to imagine, but what we do know is this. The end of verse 14 says, they were cleansed. They, all of them. That's important because of what happens next. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet. That's Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. This one man, he is not the only one of these ten men with a voice, right? The, the whole gang of ten had found their voice earlier when it was time to start shouting, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They had their voices then. But this solitary leper, this former leper at this point, is the only one who continued to use that same voice at the end of verse 15 to with a loud voice glorify God. May we never be so self-absorbed that we find ourselves raising our voices when we want mercy, but then keeping silent when God deserves praise. Ingratitude is ugly. And it is clear in this text, Jesus does not like it. Verse 17 contains a couple of questions which are sort of the epitome of uh, rhetorical emphasis, right? Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They're not found that return to give glory to God, except this stranger? And he said unto him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you whole. What is happening in front of Jesus is entirely incongruous with what Jesus had done. He had healed ten lepers, not one leper. And some of those, he says, some of those were Jews. We don't know how many. Maybe up to nine of them were Jewish. But maybe it wasn't nine, but at the very least, some of them were. And you would expect the Jews of the group who would have, would have been more ready to praise God and seek his glory than the Samaritans would. Where are the other nine, Jesus asked. We don't know. Now you might think you know. You might want to give them some credit and say, well, the other nine just kept going down the road to the priest the way that Jesus said they should. Okay, does the text say that? It says they started down the road, they were healed, and then they weren't seen again. Maybe they kept going to the priest. I don't know that we can assume that they did. Leprosy had brought them together and, and when it was healed, they, they might have all gone their separate ways again. It's not hard to imagine some of these lepers, oh well, <laughs> I've really got to get back to my family. This is my chance to spend some time with the grandkids. I'm sure Jesus will understand. All my business competitors have taken advantage of my absence. I've got to get back to work. I will thank him the next time around. Oh, I'm so fortunate to get back into society in time for the big game. There's only going to be one of these. I can glorify God anytime. The reality is, even if they were still going to the priests, as Alistair Begg has pointed out, Jesus expressed disappointment in him. 
in them. They were more interested in the opportunity to have their health certified than they were to have the healer glorified. Whatever vital things they thought they had to do or important places they had to go or significant people they had to see, it is an expression of ingratitude that they would not return and thank Jesus. And ingratitude is ugly. There is no doubt in my mind that all ten of these lepers were thankful for the gift. But the sad truth is that only one of them saw that gift as a call to praise the giver. When you look at your life, what are you most thankful for? Is your mind preoccupied with the gifts that you have received or is your mind preoccupied with the glory of the giver of those gifts? If our own lives are any indication, what has happened in this text is not all that unusual. The vast majority of society will go through their daily lives without taking an opportunity to stop and thank their creator for his mercy and love and kindness. I don't know that you'll find this controversial or not, but you don't have to be a Christian in order to owe a debt of gratitude to the Lord for his goodness. He sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on both those who honor him and those who deny him. His long-suffering mercy is extended both to redeemed saints and to rebellious sinners alike. In Acts chapter 14, as, as Paul preached the gospel in a city called Lystra, he pointed out that even among rebellious nations, God had, quote, did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Later in Acts 17, as he preached in Athens, he says, God has given to all life and breath and all things. Whatever your position in regard to Jesus this morning, even if you have not trusted him for salvation, you need to understand God has been good to you. Whether you acknowledge that or not, it's true. He's given you life and family. He, is, he sustains you. That merits your gratitude. You have friends and a warm place to come out of the cold weather. You, you either have someone who cares for you or the ability to do a job and, and care for yourself. All of that warrants your appreciation. Even more than that, you are guilty of breaking God's commands and it is only a display of his mercy that you've not yet met judgment for your sin. And he has placed you in an opportunity, in a place to hear the gospel, the offer of salvation through the work of Jesus, his perfect and holy son, who alone is worthy of your trust and your admiration and your gratitude. If we actually did what we claim to do, like literally began to count our blessings, we would likely each be convicted of our ingratitude, and ingratitude is ugly. One of my favorite examples of sort of the attitude of a thankful heart is this well-known Bible commentator named Matthew Henry. He wrote, quote, call a man unthankful and there really isn't anything worse you can say. And for the record, he wrote that, and that's an easy thing to put on paper, 
But he found out it's a hard thing to actually do in your life. It's a hard truth to put into practice. Because one evening, while walking through town, Matthew Henry was mugged. And later in his diary, he wrote these words to put gratitude into practice. He wrote, let me be thankful. First, because that man never robbed me before. Second, because although he took my money, he did not take my life. Third, although he took everything I had, it wasn't much. And fourth, because I was the one who robbed, I I was the one who was robbed, I was not the one who was the robber. I would not have found four ways to be thankful for getting mugged. I would have found 40 ways to complain about it. Perhaps that's because just like the Jewish men in our text, it is those who have the most cause to be thankful that do the worst job expressing it. If, as I noted earlier, even lost folks have many reasons to be thankful to God, it should go without saying that those people who have been saved by the grace would find even more cause to thank him. Because while we have all of those same blessings in this life that those people have, we also have assurance of even greater blessings beyond this life. We are not living our best life now. The only people who could possibly be living their best life now are people who are going to die and go to hell for eternity. For us, the best is yet to come. We have every reason to erupt in thanksgiving for the eternal blessings we have through Jesus Christ. That is something that this one lonely former leper learned in our story. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. That word whole is an interesting term. It speaks about more than just physical well-being. It means to be delivered or to be saved. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has delivered you. This leper's praise and thanksgiving and gratitude did not make him whole. His faith in Jesus, the Son of God, made him whole. But his praise and thanksgiving were the outpouring of what faith brings. That is, when you have faith in Jesus, when you have that salvation that Jesus brings, praise and thanksgiving is what should follow. And so that's why there is that repeated biblical command. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, his mercy endures forever. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. Let us continually offer praise to God, giving thanks in his name and in everything. Give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Gratitude is the only appropriate expression for who God is and what God has done. And ingratitude is ugly. I don't know how else to describe it. And so even if you find yourself this week, like the man in our text, doing it entirely alone, be thankful to God and praise his name. 